Hello, and welcome to episode 111 of Craft, Cook, Read, Repeat, a conversation about crafting food and books. I'm Monica. And I'm Courtney. Today is Thursday, March 16th, 2023. A big thank you to all of our listeners, both old and new. We hope this podcast will continue to be something you put on repeat. How's it going, Courtney? Pretty good. I was trying to think of the greeting for prior to St. Patrick's Day, like <laughs> top of the morn, Monica, but I can't do an Irish accent. So it's nice. Oh, well. Yes. St. Patrick's Eve, yeah. I guess is what we are. I don't Happy think that's St. Patrick's Eve. I don't think yeah, it's an it, official holiday. I mean, and, and it's Pi Day week. It's, so it's, yeah, it's a very this, big week. None of this rolls off the tongue. No, not really. Not really. But we have sunshine. We do. It is for a brief moment. It is beautiful weather here. All of the oxalis is springing to life, which is our local, I think it's invasive, technically, sour grass. Probably. But it it makes me think of that incredible sorbet we had in Sacramento. That was so good. I wish I had a pint of that in my freezer. That would be nice. And it's green, so it's appropriate. Tis. Exactly. All right. So yeah, we're back from Sacramento, getting back into regular life and a regular episode with On the Needles, On the Easel, On the Table, and On the Nightstand. Yeah. So should we start with On the Needles? Yes, please. I've been knitting, but pretty monogamous, monogamously. Is that, did I say that right? The second time. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Because I, I have all this exciting new yarn that I want to use, but I was in the not even the middle of the sweater. I've gotten to the middle of the sweater, but I was at the beginning of a sweater. So I felt that I needed to finish that before I started on something exciting and shiny and new. I know the feeling. Yeah. <laughs> so I did make progress on my Gridline sweater by Suzanne Summer in the Lemonade Shop Simple Sock Yarn in the colorway Ugg People, which still delights me every time. And I'm very pleased. I have finished the right side although not the sleeves, the sleeves I'm going to do after. And I am most of the way through the left side. It's super fun because it is knit sideways. So you knit from the center out and then you do picking up of stitches and keep knitting. And it's just, I have no sense of where I am really because it is such a different construction. So I'm just knitting and knitting and knitting. And then all of a sudden I was done with one side. It was very exciting. So I tried half of it on. So it was like half of a vest because I didn't, as I said, didn't have the sleeves. So I think it's going to fit. So that's, that's exciting as well. Always. Um, Yes. So I guess I'll have a better idea once I finish the whole body portion of it. And then I will add the sleeves. I'm much happier with how the colorway is working out with this sweater without, it's not fighting with the mini skeins of many bright colors that I was trying to use. So this one is just a really pale gray with speckles of bright, almost neon colors in like blue and pink. And I think there's yellow in there. There's, there's many colors. So it's super fun, but it works out well enough with this. It's so it's mostly in stockinette, but then she uses slip stitches and pearl rows to make grid lines. So outlines of squares all over the body of the sweater. So it looks cool. One of the samples she shows in the pattern is in a speckle. So that's why I thought this colorway might work out well for it. And I think it does. I'm happy with it. It is interesting because of the the way it's knit. I wasn't sure how to alternate the skeins. Usually when you're knitting in the round, you can just knit around and then knit with the next one and then, you know, keep switching back and forth 
to kind of blend your colors. So what I thought I would do is knit with one skein on the front and one skein on the back. And then my third skein would be to kind of finish things off and knit the sleeves. And it's weird because there, there seems to be just in one of the skeins that I'm using on the front, just one spot that has more of the magenta speckles in it. Because I picked up from that with that same skein and knit in the other direction and it doesn't have as many speckles. So I think it'll be fine. It's not really bothering me at the moment. And it is the same skein, so I'm not sure what else I could have done other than do some weird alternating that would have just really bothered me while I was doing it. Maybe it'll do it again somewhere else. That could be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because there were two two of the skeins looked overall like they had more speckles than one of them. So I saved that less speckly one for the sleeves and kind of mix the other ones. So I don't know. We'll see how it works out. I think it's going to be fine. The gray is all looking the same. It's just the amount of speckles in this one one spot. But I am, I am excited about it. I am enjoying working on it. I have worked on it enough that I can do it while watching TV. Last of Us finale. Oh my gosh. So good. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's completely unrelated to anything. But yeah, it's really, it, it's fun. And the, the pattern is very well written. It's very detailed, almost line by line. She tells you what you need to be doing. I don't know if I talked about the different sizes. You can personalize it so much. So you get to choose how long you want it. You can have it be cropped. You could have it, I guess, be tunic length. The width you can customize, the size of the neckline. So you can do a super tiny one, or you can do almost a boat neck. And so she gives you the instructions for... How all, to make all, all of those, those modifications. Yeah. yeah. And so part of it is going to be based on, you know, your size, but also just how you want the sweater to fit you. So lots of options in there. And I, to me, it feels very clearly written. I understand where I'm supposed to be, even with all these options. It's just been super fun. Although I do want to finish it so A, I can wear it and B, I can start something else. <laughs> so I've also been working on Simon's sail away socks because... Oh, sorry. That's what I've been calling them. That's not what they're called. <laughs> that's not what the pattern is called. They're OMG heel socks by Megan Williams. This is the online super soccer for fuck Marino. Extra fine color <laughs> in the blue and the gray gradient business that I started when we were at the sailing parents weekend. That's why in my head, I call them the sail away socks. I have this problem with all the names. So <laughs> it's making me feel better. Yeah. Rick rack sweater. Yeah. That was a good one. I need to pull that one out. So yeah, so I'm most of the way through the second foot and I'm doing them toe up. So I need to still get through the heel and then it will be ha, smooth sailing after that. <laughs> oh, I cracked me up today. But I did actually start something new because I couldn't, I couldn't not. I just had to. Originally, I was going to pull out my skein of the zebra stripe yarn that we got at Stitches and play with that. And I had a hat pattern picked out. Actually, I had a couple and I kept changing my mind. And I think I have decided on one. And then we had another atmospheric river. I was like, I can't knit with gray yarn. So I pulled out my California poppy bundle, which was the kit that I got from Nano Stitch Lab and that crafty fox. And so it's this five mini skeins of very bright colors. There's a couple of yellows and a magenta and a blue. It's just super fun. And so I played around with different pattern options for that and eventually settled on the Morning Sunshine Cowl by Stephanie Lotvin, who is Telly Bean Knits. So the pattern I'm doing is fingering, but she has a DK weight 
version as well. And I'm not sure if this is always or if it's a new pattern or she's just doing this for special for some limited amount of time. But at the moment, if you buy one, you can go in. This is in Ravelry. Maybe it's on her actual website as well. You can get the other one for free. So you might That's check fun. that out if you're interested in it. So it's one of those cowls that mimics a triangular shawl being around your neck. So it's got the the pointed front, which is super cool because then you have that look without having to worry about the shawl falling off or coming undone. And so it's got six sections and she tells you how much yarn you need for each. So I only have five colors. So the first two sections will be one color for me, which will be fine. And each one I think has a different uh, lace pattern, not super, super lacy. Maybe the, the final one is, is pretty, pretty lacy because it is the edge. So I think it'll be fun. It'll change things up. It's a cowl. So it'll, you know, should go pretty quickly, but I'm just pretty excited. I think it's going to be fun in these California poppy colors. Definitely. I'm looking forward to it. And it's bright because we have more rain coming this weekend. And that's all my knitting. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's just been pretty straightforward working on that sweater. Well, Coming out of stitches, my knitting has been totally reinvigorated right up until I made it another mistake oh, no. in my brioche, which I thought I was doing great. So here's the dilemma. Actually, it's twofold dilemma. Not really. It's one and a half fold dilemma. <laughs> the mistake is on the wrong side of the fabric, and I don't even know how I did it. And I watched Fixing Your Mistakes in Brioche video... And that didn't really clear up what I did wrong. And since it's on the reverse side, that's so this is the half mistake. I'm leaving it. So it's another... Good choice. Yeah. It's another inclusion, if you will, in my brioche section. So the, the other dilemma is that I am over it. And I'm supposed to do another complete back forth, back forth. It's... In brioche, mm -hmm. it's only two rows, but it's really four rows of knitting. Right. I'm done. It's it's fine. It's fine as is. And I can't decide if I should go the distance and do the other. Are there increases in that row? In those two rows? I don't even care. I'll figure it out. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I mean, that feels to me like that would be the only issue. I can't really count the stitches until I do... The next portion, because of this, you know, two stitches in brioche counts as one. And it's right. so confusing. Oh, no, sorry. But are there are there stitches maybe at the end that do increases for the Probably. width of the shawl? Do you normally do like a, a, a single color yarn over or make one somewhere along the line? We can yeah. look at the pattern as well. We do, we do do that at the beginning I think we add two stitches, but I'll just do it. Like I'll, yep. it's already a hot mess. <laughs> that is how fair. hard. Can yeah, it it's be two to... rows. Like at most, it's going to be four stitches. Probably you could totally add that in at some point. Right, and the the next part I know needs to be like multiples of eight or something oh, like that. There you go. Ish. <laughs> <laughs> it's all a suggestion, really. It's a shawl. I feel like yeah. No. Okay, so really, ultimately, the theme of my last, since we last spoke, has been mistakes are being made. It's just, this You're is, learning. Um, yes. You're learning is I what's happening. Learning is happening. not plateauing anywhere. <laughs> so, 
that's the brioche needle mess. Then I was doing some sewing. So now I'm switching to my sewing needles. I wanted to make, there's this sew along happening on Instagram that I was casually playing along with, which was so frugal or something like that for March, where you take a free pattern and you use fabric from your stash and make up that free pattern, which is great. I love the concept. So I pulled the Paola workwear jacket, which is a free pattern from fabricstore.com, which is chiefly a linen, an online linen. I pulled that pattern out. I found some scrap fabric and just made like you did with your sweater, just the vest part of it to see how it fit. Well, the shoulder was like off the cliff and it's that same problem that I'm having where I feel like this shoulder seam measurement up here from the distance from my neck to the top of the arm's eye is a little bit smaller than the average pattern, I guess. So I'm constantly making adjustments there. And I'm also trying to figure out how to make it fit best. So I had built this whole practice garment that didn't work and I got very frustrated. And then I watched too many videos about how to alter the arm's eye for yourself. And then I thought, I need more practice fabric than, I mean, I was like pulling pieces, bits and pieces together. So I went to the fabric store and bought a bolt of muslin, cotton muslin, which is so, it's like the most joyless kind of sewing Mm -hmm. is making these muslins. The fabric's super easy to cut. You don't have to pre-wash it. You just kind of cut the pattern out, stitch it together, and then you can try it on. But it is, it's not like not fun. It's the work side of it. It is the, what do you call it? Swatch. Swatching. It's like Uh, swatching for yarn. Exactly. I mean, some people love it, but I'm, I mean, I didn't even swatch for this sweater. I was like, ah, it'll be fine. Right. It's, it's not very fun. And it's especially not fun with muslin because you're not even playing with the actual material. You know, it's like this drab, joyless, scratchy, smells like, I don't know, it's terrible. However, it's pretty helpful. (laughs) Yeah. Because then you can put it on yourself and you can draw right on it. Mm. And, you know, mark your bust apex and you can tuck in fabric and really make true adjustments that you can then transfer to your pattern. It's all just a lot of work when you're sort of learning this new, like how to fit properly. So I haven't made it very far. I haven't made the jacket in real fabric yet because I'm still not totally confident that it's going to be great. And it only works for woven fabric. It's not made for like stretchy jersey. So yesterday I bought a bolt of stretch knit fabric from Scrap, which is like our creative reuse center. So it's really good quality, but it wasn't expensive. And I think I'll be able to, this is super exciting, I'll be able to make practice stretch garments from this, you know, to try out Mm -hmm. a pattern. And if it works, it's in this kind of pretty purple. So I can either leave it as is or dye it navy or gray or whatever. So I think that that was actually a pretty good investment in a bolt of fabric that would otherwise 
potentially go to landfill. So I'm trying to figure out how to not make so many mistakes. You're learning. Yeah, with the needle stuff. On the easel, more lessons learned. (laughs) It's a growth mindset, Courtney. It is a growth mindset. I have been painting a lot for other people. It's not always the intention of my art practice because I am trying to build up a collection for the fall. But instead, this week, I am painting a landscape, an artist rendering for my brother of his lake house. It's a tiny little, not a cabin, but it's a tiny little house. And he wants to add a porch and a little parking structure and and in order to help his wife envision this he's enlisted me to kind of do some sketches of it so that other people can get on board with his vision that's been gone because i love chatting with my brother about this stuff i also finished a piece of what i like to call fan art for one of my kids i do not put these in my permanent portfolio anywhere because it is technically licensed. This is a gonk droid from Star Wars that came out really good, according to my almost 17-year-old. He's a fan. It's hanging in his room, so I take that as a successful piece of art. As for the lessons learned, I've been doing these collections of favorites. I've been asking people what their favorite things are and building a composition of those things. Well, One of the first ones that I did, I learned a lot of lessons. For example, maybe don't put 33 things in it. (laughs) Secondly, maybe pay attention to what size paper you're using so that it's not going to cost a fortune to frame Mm. afterward, if it comes out good enough to frame. Third, compositionally, I have found from doing our podcast art that it is visually more successful if there's a piece or two at the bottom that have a shadow, because otherwise it just looks like a scattershot array Mm -hmm. of things. But if I give something at the bottom a shadow, it visually weights and grounds the piece. That I learned from the last few pieces of podcast art, where I've been doing a similar array of graphic illustrations that are more like an infographic of our podcast. So I'm really, really enjoying the podcast art these days. And if you haven't taken a peek at it, they're over at our podcast, Craft Cook Read Repeat account on Instagram. I am very much enjoying making those pieces. I think I'm going to continue it for a little bit as I am thusly inspired. It's like the one thing that I didn't make a mistake on, actually. (laughs) Yeah, I'm, I'm in a growth, growth mindset, growth mindset. All right, then, on the table. Yeah, so as I said, it was Pi Day this week, 3.14. But my husband pointed out we must be the only country that can celebrate it because they don't do their dates that way in Europe. And there's no 31st day of April. I mean, technically, I guess anybody could just be like, all right, fine, we're doing Pi Day. But it does go with the whole day. I don't know if any other, any. I mean, do any other countries that use Arabic numerals? I have do no it in idea. This backwards way that we I do. Can barely <laughs> yeah. do ours. <laughs> this is true. So, anyways, I love Pie Day. Very excited. I decided to do whole lemon tart from Shocking I Know, Smitten Kitchen. But I was super excited because she had a pie crust recipe or a 
tart recipe that she was very excited about. And I said, after my two thirds success of my make gluten free pie crust goal of last year, I felt like I could just go ahead and do it and it would be fine. And it was. I could have rolled it out more thinly. It was a little bit thick, but it was fine. And the other thing I didn't do, I didn't chill it before rolling it out because I have found sometimes with the gluten-free that if I chill it first, it is just a solid mass. Super, super crumbly. Like when you try to roll it. Yeah. It just, it's too hard to roll. So it said to chill it. And then it said, once you've chilled it to pull it out and roll it out. And then at the end of that instruction, it said, or after you've processed it, because you make the whole thing in the food processor, which was fantastic, just roll it out immediately. And so I wasn't sure where that was supposed to go and if it meant processing it in the food processor or anyway. So I, I just decided, let's see what happens. I mean, worst case, I mush it back up, stick it in the fridge for a while. It was great. Then you freeze it for a little bit, partially bake it, and then keep the food processor out because the tart filling is made in the food processor as well. So this was great. You chop up a lemon, throw it in there with sugar and butter and some, no, one egg. The whole lemon? The whole lemon. Yay. Yeah. I mean, you take the seeds out, but everything else goes in there. It's kind of like a lemon curd filling, basically, but more baked because it, well, because it is baked. Put it in there, throw it in the oven. I thought I'd overbaked it, but I think it was just perfect. It was nice and lemony. It was very satisfying. My husband loved it. I used a Meyer lemon because that is what it calls for in the ingredient list. And I had one that I'd gotten in my produce box. So I thought, well, why not? And then I saw the note at the end of the recipe that she actually prefers regular grocery store lemons because they give a little more tartness to it. The Meyer is a little sweeter. So I could see that. I could see where it might be worth trying it out with a regular supermarket lemon to get a little more zip but it was delicious it did make it to the next morning because boy one has gone back to school so there was only the three of us heating it but it did not last very much past the morning so very tasty the crust had powdered sugar in it Uh which i thought was interesting i have not done that before so so many lessons learned i have seen that here and there it's yeah. a good it's it was, a good trick. Yeah, it was good. And then I had salmon. Huh. I made salmon. I haven't done that in forever. My kids were not super into it. And then my husband was vegetarian. So it was kind of like, oh, I'm not going to do it just for myself sort of thing. But then Dinner Love Story had this great recipe or great sounding recipe, which I sent to Courtney because my first thought was, oh, it's salmon. I can't do it. But I know they eat fish. So it was gojujang glazed fish, which is a Korean spicy sauce. I guess we call it. It's a red sauce. It's kind of like... Condiment. Condiment. That's the word I'm looking for. And you mix it with soy sauce and rice wine and some brown sugar, I think, um, to make a little glaze. So it's super simple, super easy, very weeknight friendly. And my kid and my husband both love spicy business. And it occurred to me immediately after I sent it to her that this would probably be great on tofu, which means one sauce, two proteins. Here we go. Family dinner. And so I did that the other night and it was really good. I did not taste the tofu. Simon said it was good. My glaze felt a little bit thin. I don't know if it needed more brown sugar or more. Like just slightly longer cooking time would probably thicken it. No, possibly. But you don't cook it beforehand. You just mix Ah. everything up and then put it on top of the fish or the tofu or whatever you want, I guess. But it was very tasty and looked pretty. 
and was a little different. And I, you know, got to bring salmon back into the rotation. So that was, that was fun. That's an inspiring review because I haven't made salmon for a little bit because our boys don't care for salmon. It's just the two of us who like it. Oh, okay. So. I mean, boy two was accepting of the fact that that's what we were eating for dinner, but he's generally very. Anti-salmon. I mean, he's just good spirited about whatever. He's like, all right, whatever. I didn't have to make it. So it's fine. Yeah. I appreciate that in a child. Bad. So I don't. I don't know how often it will go in to repeat. I was pleased that I thought of a way to make it work for everyone and that I could to bring the salmon back in because he does. I think he liked the glazed flavor because it did have a little and it's not super spicy in any way, or at least the one that I buy is not just very flavorful. So yeah, so that was good. And then I had another one, <laughs> my mix and match, The Wimpy Vegetarian. We reviewed one of her cookbooks a few years ago, and I always find interesting things on her website. She had one for cauliflower scampi, which my husband loves that lemony business. Actually, I'm thinking of piccata, but scampi is very similar, right? Oh, yeah. Lemon, wine, garlic. Lemon, wine, garlic. Piccata just has the capers, which I was thinking would be spectacular with this. But you know, it's mostly chicken or shrimp, things he doesn't eat. So cauliflower, genius idea. Well done, you, wimpy vegetarian. And I had some cauliflower from my produce box, so I thought it'd be great. I had polenta, which I thought would be a nice combo with it. And it did turn out very well, except the cauliflower wasn't a huge one. So I was worried about it being enough for, it would definitely be enough for two people. Three people, especially a kid who's just come back from track practice, maybe not. So I had some chicken in the freezer, defrosted it, just doubled all my sauce ingredients, two pans. Then I had chicken scampi. If I had had shrimp, I probably would have just used that instead. But yeah, it was really good. Very lemony. There was a lot of lemon in it, lots of garlic. So really tasty. So we had chard with that and the polenta and it was just a lovely, delicious dinner. Good flavors this week. Yeah. And husband said that the the cauliflower was tasty as well. I I had like one bite of it just to taste it. So I didn't get a full, I can't give a full review of how awesome it was, but the sauce with the chicken was delicious. So I imagine with the cauliflower, it was also very good. How about you? We are having an interesting food week. We have some boys home for spring break. Our older son and a friend of his are hanging out in San Francisco. This friend has never been to the city before. And so there's lots of, oh, let's take him here. Let's take him there. So I'm not really cooking that much. We're doing important burrito tasting. Last night, we took everyone to sushi. Our older kid is not a sushi fan, but he tasted everything except the little baby squid bowl. There was a bowl of teeny tiny squid. And I have to say, I'm all for trying that, but I didn't care for it either. Super fun though, to introduce somebody to San Francisco. In fact, when I was driving them over the Golden Gate Bridge, I had a very emotional perimenopausal mom (laughs) moment where I was like, look at this beautiful city we get to live in. And I was like, had tears in my eyes. They were in the backseat rolling their eyes at me. That's just me being real these days. I mean, it is objectively true. It is such a gorgeous city. I I was saying to him, I don't think there's a better approach to San Francisco than to come down from Marin 
and you come through the tunnel and there's the Golden Gate Bridge awaiting you. It's nice to fly in, but then you've got to come up 101 or 280. And anyway, I think, you know, if you're in a vehicle, this is pretty stellar. It's pretty good. Does your family agree on the best burrito place? No, we do not agree. Interesting. What do you think is the best burrito place? I don't actually have a favorite. Oh. Because we live out here in the hinterlands, so... And most burritos are not gluten-free because of the flour tortilla business, so we have not made... Yeah, I, know, I it's can't sad. help you. Yeah. We are big fans of Gordo's, which is Ninth and Irving. Well, there's one at Ninth and Irving. El Faro in the Mission is the California burrito place. But it's a pain to get there sometimes at dinner time. And then we really love La Corneta, which is in Glen Park, which they make a salmon burrito that I super adore. And I have them put extra cilantro in. And I really love it. And they grill the salmon right then and there. It's very satisfying. And then we have Miraloma Market in our neighborhood, which is, for the most part, a very utilitarian burrito you know it's it's a very solid tuesday night burrito if you will anyway so we've been doing a lot of that but on the rainy night rainy we had a super stormy couple of days and i made my grandfather's ragu it turned out that it was also the anniversary of his death the day that i made the ragu which kind of freaked me out but you know I embrace that kind of weirdness. He taught me how to make this ragu when I was in college. I have talked about this before because he was so proud of himself to make it from scratch, made me pinky swear that I would never add bell peppers to it because he just doesn't believe in that. We browned off the beef and he had grated carrot in there and you know, a couple cans of stewed tomatoes and all of the herbs and seasonings and stuff. And then he, to like round it out, dumped in a couple jars of prego or ragu. I can't remember which one. And that seems like an abomination to me now because I'm a snob, I guess. And I like it, but I still went and dumped a jar of raos, raos. I was going to say, but you use (laughs) raos. Right. Um, So who am I? I am just a snob, and he's laughing at me from above, and that's all fine. Poppy's ragu. We call them Poppy. And then my other weird food thing this week was I made another batch of those egg muffins, those breakfast egg muffins in the giant Mm -hmm. muffin cups. I made a double batch because I'm helping somebody out who needs a little help with her breakfasts. And so I made a double batch so that I'd have some in the house. And hers are low sodium and she couldn't have spinach. So I did uh, zucchini in both of them this time. And I put a little pancetta in mine because I can have (laughs) a little pancetta. And I remembered to put in the tray of steaming water so that they kind of souffle. And I heated one up this morning and was so glad of my two days ago self for making breakfast for the week. It's not a temple lunch, but it's it's a temple breakfast for sure. Most important meal of the day. Yes. So that's kind of what's been going. I made chocolate chip cookies too. Mm. They're gone now, long gone. Yeah. But otherwise, a busy on the table 
week, but just not my table. We've been <laughs> takeout and eating different places and putting it together for a friend. Fair enough. Yeah. I'll have to try out those egg cups. Yeah. Because that can... would be nice. Our breakfasts are getting kind of, we're in the doldrums a little bit. And I think that that could be a good quick one for the the kiddo. I think what I like about them is their adaptability. Like I was able to adapt it for a friend. I like them with a little bit of breakfast sausage and spinach personally, but I can put the recipe, the full recipe in the show notes because I forget where I have was originally. I think it might have been Instagram that I originally oh, found this. You know what else I've been using? My what? super cubes. Oh. I had talked about those just after our gift giving episode. So maybe in the new year, they make one cup cubes that you throw in the freezer. And so I guess you could put whatever, but I've been putting soup in them. If I have leftover soup and then I have these nice serving sizes that I can put in a bowl and microwave or, you know, then defrost them however you like. And it's been very handy because I had some butternut squash soup left over and I had some lentil soup. And I've had a couple of days where it makes a great quick lunch. And awesome. it's just thank you, past Monica. Yeah. And so I've, I've been glad that I've been actually been using them. Although I guess we'll have to see because I'm not making soup as much now because spring is coming and it's less hearty soupy. Gazpacho. <laughs> I'm not a gazpacho fan. Yeah. I don't really get the point of it. <laughs> anyway, on the nightstand... Again, only three books. What? I know. Well, okay. So the reason, and one of them I'm only halfway through, but that halfway through means I've read 500 pages. Okay. Tell us about this brick. <laughs> so, no, no, I'm saving it for last. Oh, okay. I wanted to talk first about a new mystery series that I have found, <gasps> although I think I might have heard it mentioned on What Should I Read Next? So many of you may have heard of it as well. I could be wrong, though. Could be from my library. Anyway, Right Sort of Man by Alison Montclair, who is actually Alan Gordon, who I guess has his, had his own career and his editor came and said, hey, we've got this idea. Do you want to write it? But we're going to make it be by a woman. I don't know. I mean, I think I know why. But anyway, it's fine. I have no issues with his writing, except the part in the second one where he has the four-year-old little lordling call his mom's friend by her first name. I don't think so. Anyway, so we are London, just after World War II. Iris Sparks and Gwendolyn Bainbridge meet at a mutual friend's wedding, and they become friends, and they decide to start up a marriage bureau and help people meet up, you know, 1940s Tinder, basically. <laughs> Am I wrong? I don't think so. I don't know. I haven't read it yet, but... Well, it's not. It's a little bit less, like, salacious. They both have issues in the war that they don't talk about. It's still a new friendship. Things are going pretty well with the marriage bureau. They've set up a couple weddings. Other people are going on dates. So it's going well until their latest client winds up murdered and the police think the guy that she was set up with is the one who did it. Iris and Gwen don't think that's the case. And so they are on the case. Yeah, so it was really sweet. 
it was a really nice friendship between the two women. They have nice, they have interesting backgrounds. They have interesting friends. There was a twist at the end that I'm not entirely sure I agree with, but that's a me thing. I don't think it took away from the overall mystery and plot and whatnot. And I listened to it. It was an audiobook, so you got a lovely upper class British accent. You got various, all sorts of British accents, which is just, you know, I'm one of those Americans who finds that very soothing to listen to. Same. So yeah, it was fun. It was good. Uh, you know, women being strong, independent types. And I, you know, started listening to the second one. And then I, I'm a little bit sad because I think there's two more books in the series, but they do. my library doesn't have them on audio. So I might have to read them. I mean, maybe they'll come out in audio. Maybe they'll see that I have been checking them out and they will order them. I, Fingers crossed. Does that work? I hope it works. I have no idea. Because I have requested the library order new yeah. books that they haven't ordered. Same. You know, I'll make a suggestion. Yeah. They will let you make up to like 20 suggestions, I think. There's some limit, which makes me oh, wonder really? like who is making that many suggestions that they had to put a limit on it. No, no but it was I it was like 20 a month or something. I mean, oh, it was oh. it was a lot. I mean, I maybe make 10 suggestions a year. Yeah. And they're mostly art books. That seems fair. That, they're expensive though. Yeah. I mean, that's why you have a library. I love the library. <laughs> it's the best. Right Sort of Man by Alison Montclair, who's actually, as I said, Alan Gordon. So then, okay, so the reason why I wanted to talk about both of the next two books is because they kind of, it, it made this little book flight with the book. Do you have a Gold Rush Bordello? <laughs> Jewish Mysticism. Ooh. Which is... Equally enticing. Equally enticing. Well, I guess it's not entirely. These two books that I'm going to talk about our Jewish mysticism, but the they, the the first one goes with the one I talked about last time, Hell of a Book. They both just had a lot of similar characteristics. I mean, they both talked about racism and magical realism, and it was just a really interesting like comparison yeah. Yeah, that I was yeah. not expecting at all. And especially since I read a ton of genre fiction, so that all of a sudden to go on this not a higher level of reading, but a more substantial, yeah. right? I'm reading it for different reasons. Anyway, so the first book that I wanted to talk about, which I have finished because it was not a thousand pages, Before All the World by Moriel Rothman Zecker. It was just beautiful. So it is the story of three people. It starts off in the early 20s and bounces back and forth between then and uh, the mid 30s. So Gitzel and Leib are the only two survivors of the massacre of their village in what is now Belarus by government soldiers. Leb is about seven at the time, Giddle's about 20. So she packs him off to America to live with a cousin of his. And then she she buries all of the people in her village and begins wandering. She eventually gets a, a visa to come to America. She meets up with Leb and he is living with Charles. So the three of them meet. And so the book is supposed to be Charles's translation of Gittel's story that she has written in, they call it Jewish, I think it's actually Yiddish, but in the book they refer to it as Jewish, so that's probably what I'm going to be saying. Charles is a black man, he's a communist, he is a writer and a translator, he speaks Jewish. So the three of them just have this really interesting relationship that develops. So again, there's a lot of different kinds, there's the racism, there's the anti-Semitism, there's America versus where they were in Europe. And the author, because he's he's presenting it as a translation, 
he plays with the language and has Charles translate it and actually transliterate it. So playing with the Yiddish words and how they're different from English just made for a really interesting reading experience. And the language is just beautiful. There's a, a middle section where Giddle is talking about the aftermath of the massacre that's just heartbreaking and amazing. And I don't even know how the author did it. I just, it wow. was just, it was, it was really powerful. And then there's also these interesting footnotes that are in there that are sometimes just straight translations or additional translations. And sometimes there are whole asides and like extra information about the story. It was just a really cool work. It was a little bit tricky at the beginning to get into it because half of your brain is trying to figure out what's happening with the language. And he's going back and forth in time. So you're trying to figure out where you are in time and what the language is doing and what's going on. And But once you can kind of sink into it, it was just really cool. I don't think I would recommend listening to it, at least on the first go round, because of all the footnotes, which are really important to the story. And even I was reading it on my Kindle and the final footnote, which was amazing, popped up weird. So I only got it was like one word and then multiple paragraphs. It just gave me the one word, which was cool. But I almost missed all of these amazing others final thoughts. And it was just because I was flipping back and forth, looking at some of the other footnotes that I found it. So it's tricky. I, You might want to go for an actual book book mm. copy of this if you can find it. But I don't know that I would listen to it. Although it could be cool to have both the audio and the book just to because I don't I don't know how to pronounce a lot of the Jewish words. So and the names and stuff. So that could be interesting to hear the language read aloud additionally, Before All the World by Moriel Rothman Zecker. And then the final one, which again, I'm only halfway through, but I think it's pretty fantastic so far. And this is a continuation of our Jewish mysticism flight? Yes. Okay. The Books of Jacob by Olga Tokarja. Trans I love her writing. Yeah. Oh, I'm super oh, excited. Oh, which ones have you read? Drive Your Plow. Um, yeah. So I read Flights. She is a Polish writer. Uh, she won the Nobel Prize for Literature a few years ago. I guess maybe more of them have been translated now. I think this one came out a few years ago because, as I said, it's a big book, so it would probably take a while to translate. So the full title of this is The Books of Jacob, or A Fantastic Journey Across Seven Borders, Five Languages, Three Major Religions, Not Counting the Minor Sex, Told by the Dead, Supplemented by the Author, Drawing from a range of books and aided by imagination, the witch being the greatest natural gift of any person, that the wise might have it for a record, that my compatriots reflect, laypersons gain some understanding, and melancholy souls obtain some slight enjoyment. Oh, I love that last. And that's kind of a set. That's pretty much what you need to know. So it is, there's a, <laughs> there's a dude named Jacob Frank, and I think he's a real per. he was a real person. And so it's sort of based on his life. Uh, we're in the 1750s, a lot of Poland, but all of kind of Eastern Europe and into the Turkish Empire. And he was a Jewish mystic and prophet and people thought he was the Messiah. And he had a huge following. And so the book is told by some of his followers and other people in his orbit. So far, I don't think we've ever had his actual thoughts, which is kind of interesting. So there are a lot of characters. There's a lot of back and forth. We've got various Jewish families. We've got Catholic bishops. 
And everyone is kind of wondering who he is and what's going on. And is he the Messiah? And what does that mean? And it's just, it, it is a fantastic journey. And I am, I am, I still am only halfway through. So I have a lot, a lot of the journey left, but I'm interested to see where it is going. And is it a fictionalized version of his life? Or is it sort of a... It's a fantastical fictionalized uh. version of his life. I mean, because... The people who are talking about him see him performing miracles. Did this actually happen? And and part of it, you can tell they'll see something happen and then they're writing it down so they make it more fantastic and oh magical. Yes. As as sometimes happen. I've seen this movie before. Yeah. I know I know what happens when apostles write down <laughs> the stories of somebody they yeah. revere. Exactly. How things get extrapolated, yeah. perhaps. But there, there is, there is, you know, anti-Semitism is playing a role in it, and there's different Christian groups as well, which I tend to forget about. You, we sort of focus a lot on the Luther, but there's various, yeah, Catholic Wait, versions. People are fighting about religion. I know, amazing, huh? Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of a lot of interesting things happening. It's a little bit hard to keep track of it all, but it's very, it's just really well written. I guess part of it is probably the translation as well is very well done. It doesn't feel like a translation. It feels like this is the language it was written in. And a lot of times I don't feel that with translations. You can tell it's a little bit, there's some work being done. This feels very, very smooth. And I think just her writing is also great. So yeah, so <laughs> I might not have many books next time either, as I will still be working on this one, but it did fit so nicely with my my other ones that I wanted to talk about it. I understand the significance of a flight. It's very exciting. It is so good. Yeah. So probably we'll get some more genre fiction, fear not, next time. Thank you. How about you? On my nightstand, I have been reading a weird little array. I want to start with Gold Fame Citrus by Claire Vey Watkins. This book is from I think 2015, and it is a post-apocalyptic take on what life is like when we use up all the water, which doesn't feel, well, given our current precipitation, <laughs> I think we've got another year or two under our belts, but before all of the rain, this drought thing in California, this would have felt quite real. It takes place predominantly in California, and our main character, Luz, which is short for, I think, Lucy. When she was born, they used her as kind of like the Gerber baby stereotype in that, you know, by the time baby Luz, by the time she can take swimming lessons, all the swimming pools will be drained of water. By the time she's 20, we'll have no potable water in the state of California. And so the water counselor has used her as the poster child for where things are headed. She is kind of a lost soul. I mean, almost everybody in this book is a lost soul because they're thirsty and we can't grow anything. And it's, it is prescriptively depressing as a book. There are some key moments though, where Luz and her boyfriend rescue this little two-year-old from a rave. And the government gives water rations and everybody is drinking this like old cola that has been donated because it didn't meet the f like formula requirements. And so 
it's pretty bleak. Luz doesn't see anyone caring for this child, and so they take the child. And it is very wild, literally wild west. Nobody is paying attention to anything. Everyone is in survival mode. And it is bleak from beginning to end. And I think I was hoping for a different kind of payout with this novel. I don't even like these kind of books. Why did I? I really wanted to find out what happened to the baby. And I think I was, I was feeling like there was some kind of foil, like there was something being hidden from me. And that is why I stuck with it. Ultimately, the payoff is in the structure of the novel. And there are different narrative styles coming through to kind of help round out the story. And that is is really what held my interest for most of it. Aside from it being pretty bleak, I think I was also very frustrated with the male-dominated society is very heavy-hitting in the book. And I, I didn't like that. I wanted her to stand up for herself. And there's one woman who does stand up for herself and she's like the like a redeeming figure in the book. It's it's complicated. I can't say that I loved it, but I finished it. So that's that's still not a shining endorsement. The writing is really good. The subject matter is really challenging. Then I read Sam by Allegra Goodman. This one is brand spanking new. It just came out in January or February. Allegra Goodman is a beautiful writer. I have read something of hers a while back, but I forgot to jot it down. This novel, however, it's a buildings Roman style, like a coming of age story about a young girl named Sam who we stay satisfyingly close to her orbit throughout the whole novel. And we really get a chance to see her evolution. Her parents are on the young side. Her father has some addiction problems and her mother is just desperately trying to get her on the right path. The mother's voice is heartbreakingly good because she just wants everything for her daughter that she didn't have a chance for. And so as Sam is growing up, she's making decisions because of what her mother tells her. And ultimately, you can tell that that is not the right fit. There's a beautiful metaphor through this where she finds climbing, like joy in rock climbing, and how that is a very concrete part of her tween years and how climbing and falling off and getting back up again and finding a different way. And when you're out there, you're alone and you have to make these decisions all on your own, that that is a metaphor for how she is navigating her life. And then the through way to the ending is perfect. And I love it. I don't even want to give anything away because I think it's a quieter book. And those are the, sometimes the books I like best where it's really just this one character that you really can watch grow and change and evolve and that that is so satisfying. And then, sort of in honor of St. Patrick's Day, I have Foster oh, by yes. Claire Keegan. And I say St. Patrick's Day because it takes place in Ireland. Monica read Foster a while, a couple months ago. Maybe just one month, not too long. As part of her Irish book club. We love Claire Keegan. 
novel around here, she is essential in her prose. It is very, there are no, there's no fluff in her novel. They're very, they're very lean and yet spacious. I think I read it in two hours and I had questions for days because there were certain things that I'm pretty sure I read through one lens and she meant through another. Okay, I should set this up just to remind people what this book is about. We have a young girl who goes to live with her mother's people. I think it's her mother's sister, older sister. I think so. Because her mother is having yet another child and her house is overrun with kids and an alcoholic dad and her mom just can't, just cannot. And so she sends her to live with this relative that she has no recollection of. And the father unceremoniously drops her off and drives away and forgets to leave her luggage, which is heartbreaking. And then the aunt and uncle then proceed to show her care and attention that she has never really felt in her life. And the sparseness of the language and the sparseness of the love that this child has received is all heartbreaking and beautiful. And then you learn the backstory of these people and you're rooting for something that you know can't quite happen, you know, that she perhaps stay with them or it's all very heart-wrenching. And then it has this very quiet ending and you you leave a piece of your heart with this girl and there the ultimate question is is it crueler to have shown somebody what they're missing and send them back or to have never shown them at all and i can't wait to go see this movie with monica because it is out in theaters right now it's the quiet girl and i listened to an interview with the writer of the screenplay. So the book is written in English. The movie is in Irish because he felt like the voice would have its own special flavor if it was in Irish. And so I just can't wait to see this movie. I think it will be incandescent. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how they do it because the book is told from the girl's viewpoint. So there's things that she doesn't understand that we get as adults we know like what's going on and so it'll be interesting to see how they or if they make that happen in the movie how they choose to portray all the the relationships and how she finds out things and yeah yeah in addition to listening to the interview with this screenwriter i also does that count for your your ideas and plans yeah in my ideas and plans I wanted to mention a great, joyful interview that I listened to with Lynette Idiom Bocage, who is at the Tate Modern, where she's discussing her process. She has a painting called Black Allegiance to the Cunning that has this beautiful figure, a black man seated in a like a simple wooden chair, and underneath of him is this gorgeous fox. And I am in love with this painting. And she talks about her process on the Tate Modern YouTube page. And I'm going to point people there if you want to go see it. Because I'm trying to share 
stellar interviews with all kinds of creative people this year. So I'll have that in the show notes. Excellent. All right, then. So until next time, make sure to do something you love every day. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Show notes can be found at craftcookreadrepeat.podbean.com. You can find us on Instagram as craftcookreadrepeat or courtneysf, that's C-O-R-T-N-E-Y-S-F. On Ravelry, I'm Magdon, M-A-G-D-O-N. And if you have any questions or comments, email us at craftcookreadrepeat at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.